0: Hey everybody, my name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. And um, I'm actually kind of excited for what we're gonna do today, which is a little different, as Cameron mentioned. We are trying out a different form of service for our all virtual services. And while we are exclusively virtual, waiting out the Omicron wave and trying to keep everybody safe, we are going to go into uh, a different kind of sermon series. We're calling it Brief, because we are keeping it brief, keeping it short, going into this really, really big book, right? Like, I don't think anyone would describe the Bible as brief. And actually remembering that it's not a book, it's a library. There are 66 books in the Bible, and some of them are actually quite short. Like, I swear, I know it's not cute, but I send text messages longer than some of the books in this Bible. There are books of the Bible that are under 300 words in their original Greek, and we are going to uh, read some of them together. Now, at ZOW, we come from a lot of different theological and biblical and uh, church-related backgrounds. I know we've got a lot of people who uh, grew up Catholic, some who grew up evangelical. Uh, We've got uh, Lutherans spanning from, you know, the super ultra-conservative Wisconsin Synod through the very progressive ELCA. Um, And of course, we have United Methodists here and folks who grew up without any church background at all, which means we have a lot of different feelings about the Bible. But I very rarely meet people at Zao who talk to me about the Bible and are like, oh yeah, I feel like one million confident. I truly enjoy reading the Bible. I have no uh, deep-seated frustrations with what it means or what it says to my life. And I feel like it's just an overall generally great resource for me. I would love to get to that point, uh, but that's going to take a lot of work for a lot of us. Some of us grew up in traditions that uh, really didn't put a lot of emphasis on the scriptures, putting more emphasis on church hierarchy and authority outside sources to interpret for us, and so we don't feel like we have any tools to read the Bible. Others of us grew up in really, really intense Bible-believing churches um, that emphasize the the biblical aspect uh, in a way that uh, honors its holiness uh, and its, its centrality as a tool that God gave us. But sometimes, uh, was given to us in ways that really made it seem like there was only one way to read it, um, and those one, the, the one way that we were given is woefully insufficient, sometimes outright harmful. And so a lot of us are really trying to reorient our relationship to the Bible. We're trying to say, hey, I grew up with something that's not working for me, or I grew up with no orientation to this book at all. How do I treat it? with the respect it deserves, um, as, a, as a holy tool, a gift from God, and also as something that's not going to beat me up and shame me and or bore me to death. Because let's be real, there are a lot of begats in here. So uh, I think there are a lot of—I uh, have so much passion about the Bible. I really do love the Bible. Um, and there are a lot of things that I think can help us reorient our relationship to the Bible very quickly. One of them is to never read this book alone. I think it can be really easy to say like, oh, if I am a Christian, I should be reading the Bible, and the Bible is God's word, therefore it is perfect, and I should read the Bible, and God is talking to me, and I should understand, and if I don't understand, I'm not understanding God, and I'm not a good Christian, and this is not working, and oh my God, please just put it back on the shelf. It can be really intimidating to approach this huge book and be expected to make any sense of it, especially when we 're approaching it by ourselves and I think when we open it up and we find things that are boring or overwhelming or scary or violent, uh, we go, "Oh my gosh i don 't know if i don 't know if this is working," and it can actually make us feel like we trust less in God because the text can be really um, really intimidating or can feel. Uh, like it doesn't reflect the God that we know and love or the God that we're seeking after. And so one of the remedies is to make sure that you're not trying to do this alone. This book, this library, was developed in community, and it was meant to be read in community. We'll talk about this a lot this series, but a lot of the, the books from the New Testament are actually letters. Letters that were intended to be read aloud in a congregational setting. So no one would ever have been alone with these scriptures because they would have heard it first and foremost as a community together. And that's the point, that mutual discernment, that learning together. And so this is something we do together. During this series, you will be reading and hearing together. You can comment um, on our live streams and have open conversation about it. You can hear my thoughts on it. Um, I'm gonna invite you to read different translations and to engage other resources. And all of that can help give you more information To never read that alone, but to read it with the Holy Spirit, who is always with you, with your community who loves you and can discern and debate and dialogue together. And then, really importantly, with those resources, with commentaries, because a lot of this requires context, and context changes everything. So uh, I really want to recommend, if you don't have a Bible and you're looking to get one, um, I recommend investigating a couple Bibles. Some Bibles are really easy to find used um, and and are a great resource. You will see that I have uh, gotten a lot of use out of my NRSV translation um, Oxford Annotated Bible. This is a Bible that comes with um, some experts, their opinions, their introductions to some of these Uh, books have been really helpful to me in my own learning. I read several introductions to these uh, works that we're about to go into to get my own Uh, self-refreshed and and backed up, and then there are little notes at the bottom for a lot of the verses that give more context. So um, even without buying commentaries or looking up other experts, just getting a good annotated Bible um, is really helpful. That context, um, again, I'm going to recommend the Oxford Annotated NRSV. Um, The other one you can get that's an annotated NRSV Bible that's really highly recommended by seminaries and other institutions of higher learning is the Harvard Upper Collins Annotated Bible, Um, that's going to be a word-for-word translation. So we're talking highly academic, trying to be as faithful to each individual word um, as possible. And then there are other translations that are a little bit more reader-friendly, because sometimes a word-for-word translation is a little clunky. Languages are beautiful. They They are art They are relationship. And so when we try and shift something from one language to another, there's always loss. There's always um, kind of additional fuzziness that gets added. And so there are a couple of different ways to approach it. And one is that word for word that's like, we're gonna be as literal as we can, faithful word for word in a translation. And then there's another approach that says, hey, actually like human beings don't speak in these like really isolated words we have all kinds of nuance and um, feeling behind what we're talking about where we use phrases and metaphors and those things matter. And translating word for word a metaphor from another language maybe isn't going to land as well. So, a little bit more of that, that looser translation that makes things a lot easier to read can be really helpful. And the one that I recommend, um, this is just the New Testament here, but the Common English Bible. So if you're reading something like the NRSV and you're like, oh, this does not make sense or it feels really clunky, um, I recommend checking out the Common English Bible. I often, though, will look at both when I'm trying to get into a passage. Um, <clears throat> There's also the message. Some people love the message. The message is is actually not considered a translation at all. It's a paraphrase. Um, So that's kind of the loosest end. Um, You'll hear me do a lot of like Jonah P. Overton's paraphrasing message of the Bible um, during this series. And so you'll get a sense for what that is. Um, But uh, the message can be a good resource to have alongside those other two translations. But I just really want to emphasize that it is an interpretation, and it's putting a lot of meaning into the text. It's taking a lot of meaning out of the text. And I, uh, God bless Eugene Peterson for making the Bible so much more accessible to people, because um, it is. It's very readable. Um, but I think that it's a, it's a pretty unradical take on a lot of the texts. Um, so that is my spiel on resourcing yourself to read these texts well. Get a translation and an annotation that's going to help you out. Now, all of that, if you don't happen to have access to these, can feel really expensive. You don't have to buy a Bible. The NRSV and the CEB are both available along with a jillion other translations online. Um, BibleGateway.com is a really great resource too. And so what I'm going to recommend is that for this service— um, if you're able, if you have enough devices at hand to have the service up on one and be uh, looking at a translation on another, just pull up, uh, pull up Google, throw um, NRSV and then whatever verse or book we're talking about in, in the search bar, and uh, it'll take you probably to Bible Gateway or Bible Hub, um, and you can pick out that translation and, and read it along with us. Now, now that I've given you the spiel about resourcing yourself for for reading and understanding the Bible, I want to tell you one final way that you can have context for what you're reading when you read the Scriptures. And that is reading more than one verse at a time. Now, this may not seem like a very radical change to the ways that we read Scripture, but I want to tell you a little bit about the difference between the way modern Christianity approaches Scripture and the way that Scripture was written um, in, throughout its millennia of history of being written and compiled. I, when I was uh, discovering that I loved to power lift, I got really deep into some, some bro cultures that were a huge blessing to me. Um, But one of the most fascinating to me was my Christian bros. My Christian lifting bros. Uh, And one of them, uh, as a kindness, gave me a keychain. It was a barbell. It actually had movable plates on it. It was very, very sweet. And inscribed on the bar of the barbell, um, was and I'm, I should have looked up this exact reference, and it's it's slipping my mind right now. But it's a passage from Philippians, and I knew it. I knew what it was referencing the instant I saw it, before I even had to look up the passage, because it was, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me." Now, this is a really inspiring passage, right? Like, I can do all things. And my Christian lifter bros were really into it. They were like, yes, I can do all things. Put that extra plate on there. I got this. Here we go. Here we go. I could do all things. Hooah! And it was super fun, and it felt really inspiring uh, to those folks. And and I don't want to downplay the the power of Scripture to meet us wherever we are, to give us the kind of encouragement that we need. Um, And I think that it is in in God's plan that we feel empowered, that we feel connected to our bodies, that we can do feats of strength. But it always struck me as a little funny that none of the folks who were really leaning into that Scripture in that way, in my circle, knew anything about the context of that letter written from prison— and that the idea of being strengthened by God to do all manner of things was about resisting empire. It was about coming into conflict with the state. It was about risking one's life for the sake of the gospel. I think that the scriptures really do, like I said, meet us where we are in our lives. They carry levels of meaning, layers of meaning. They contain multitudes. The Holy Spirit can communicate truth in ancient words to us in a modern context. And scripture can mean something new that it has never meant before ever in the history of creation. All of a sudden when you read it in your moment of your life. The Holy Spirit can create new, uh, powerful truth with you as you read the scripture. And so I don't want to take that away. And it helps to know where these moments originated, what the context was when these things were said, what the, the point of these scriptures were in their original meaning. Because that's where we have to begin in order to discern what those new truths are. Because if we want to be Bible-believing Christians, if we want to be people faithful to the scriptures, faithful to the text, we have to know what they mean. And they can mean many things, but there are some things they meant first. And if the things we claim they mean now are in violation of what they meant first, then that's a very serious shift we're making. And I'm not even saying that's a shift we can't make, but it's one that we ought to make on purpose. So knowing what these words meant when they were written matters. And I know that, that the, we get back then to like these, these good translations, the annotations, the historians, the historical criticism, and you could, you could take endless classes on this and still be debating all of what that meant in its original context. But the easiest and quickest way to give yourself just a little more context is to read more than one verse at a time. We love to take these little excerpts out. And again, this book is so big. It's so big. It feels like you can't read it all at once. Therefore, it doesn't really matter how small the chunks are. But taking one verse out here and there and importing totally new meaning gives you no opportunity to understand where it originally comes from. And where it originally comes from is almost always going to be more radical than what it means when it's embroidered on a pillow. So giving yourself the opportunity to see a bigger picture can, can radically shift how you approach this text. And for, uh, for an opportunity to, to practice that right here, right now, I'm going to do the thing that, that we normally do before I even start yammering away. I'm going to give you the reading of the scripture for today. I invite you to pull it up on your... Um, on your devices, if you have access, again, just, you know, Google. We're going to do NRSV. We're going to read that one together. NRSV, the verse, we're going to do one verse. It's Third John, so you just write 3 John, chapter 1, verse 11. That's going to be our first reading for the day. Will you join me in reading the Word of God? Third John, chapter 1, verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Whatever do, whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Now this verse is from the scriptures, and so we will end with the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now I'd like to do a second reading. It's 3 John, the entire book. Here we go. Again, if you're coming along with me, look this up in your Bible um, or pull it up on your device. The third letter from John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved. Beloved. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health just as I know it is well with your soul. I was overjoyed when some of the friends arrived and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, namely how you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the friends, even though they are strangers to you. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on in a manner worthy of God. For they began their journey for the sake of Christ, accepting no support from non-believers. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we may become co-workers with the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, Who likes to put himself first? does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing and spreading false charges against us. And not content with those charges, he refuses to welcome the friends and even prevents those who do want to do so and expels them from the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Whoever does what is good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God, Diotrephes. Everyone has testified favorably about Demetrius, and so has the truth itself. We also testify for him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. Instead, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk together face to face peace to you. The friends send their greetings. Greet the friends there, each by name. The Word of God for the people of God. Amen. Anybody notice anything different (laughs) in the reading of these two scriptures? I am really excited. I can't see right now because I'm up here doing the thing, but I'm super excited to read your comments and all of your thoughts about the difference between those two readings of the same passage. You see, reading all of it in context changes so much. And when we pull things out, they can feel extra holy. But actually, there's so much behind this that's more interesting and in many ways more human, more relatable, and therefore more applicable to our lives. So we are going to unpack 3 John and by extension get into the second shortest book of the Bible, 2 John, a little bit today. But I wanted to do that exercise with you so that you could see and feel the difference between that pulling out of one verse and reading it in context and having a totally different meaning. If there is a verse or a handful of verses that you know and love, and I don't, I'm not trying to ruin this for you, I'm trying to complexify it for you. If there's a verse you love, I really challenge you to go and find the context for it. Read the, ch- the whole chapter it's in. If it's a short enough book, just sit down and read the whole book it's in. Try and understand what the meaning of that verse you love is within a broader context and give it that more depth, that layering of meaning. For instance, one of the verses that's extremely popular is Jeremiah 29 11, For God, you know, God speaking, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for your well-being, plans for you to prosper and not come to harm. That's a beautiful verse. It's saying that God has something in mind for us. But when we read it in the context of Jeremiah, we understand that that verse comes in this whole big saga of the people of God about to lose their home and be driven into exile. The people of God experiencing what they feel to be punishment for unfaithfulness. And God saying, hey, I know you're about to go into exile. I know things are going to be bad for you, but also I know the plans that I have for you, not for you to be diminished, but for you to prosper. For not not for harm to come for you, but for good. And that gives so much more richness to say, hey, God isn't telling us this when things are looking good. God is telling God's people when things were looking really ugly. I have so many of those verses that mean so much to me, that means so much more in these bigger, bigger contexts. So just think about it. You know, what are some of the verses you love? And, and jot those down. See where that leads you if you want to explore bigger. And frankly, this works in the reverse too. If there are verses that have really harmed you, verses that have, have caused you strife or struggle, verses that have challenged you in good ways or in unhealthy ways, look for the context. See what was going on because it might mean a different thing than what you were originally told or what you hear when you isolate that verse. But back to the letters. Letters. So the history here of of 2nd and 3rd John, there are three letters that are the the Johannine epistles. Um, So basically, these are letters that are written in the tradition of the teacher John. Now, there's all kind of debate about most of the books of the Bible, uh, and these letters are no exception. Um, there are some people who say, like, oh yeah, John from the disciples wrote the Gospel of John, and then these three letters, here we go. Then there are other people who are like, ah, ah. Uh, <laughs> and then there are some people who are like, no. Uh, and, but there is consensus that uh, probably the same person who wrote Second John also wrote 3 John. Uh, he refers to himself as the elder, very, very likely uh, he, him pronouns. And, uh, and these letters are linked. And they are in the tradition of the teachings of the Gospel of John, which is part of how they got their name and, and part of how people started to kind of link these letters together. Some of the language is the same. Some of the approach to how to talk about Jesus and how to conceptualize what it means to be a believer are similar. And so we can understand that they are in a part of a particular tradition. You could think of them as Lutheran or as Methodist, right? They're a particular strand of the early church in the second century um, within, like, you know, a hundred or so years after uh, Jesus was born, lived, uh, crucified, and resurrected. So, you know, there have been a couple generations here, and there are house churches, These churches were largely underground for a very long time, and so they had leadership from inside these churches because, as we know, those of us who live in human institutions and and participate in church, there are systems and authorities that spring up, um, even in these radical underground communities. And so the church is starting to become established, and there are different leaders who are vying for power. There are different challenges to authority. There are also a lot of different proposals for what to believe and how to make sense of who Jesus is and how to follow him. And so in the second letter from John, which is, like I said, the second shortest book of the Bible, we're not going to read it here, but you could read it in a couple minutes on your own if you wanted. They are talking about a, the, the elder is writing a letter to the open church um, saying, hey, We've got conflict right here in River City. Uh, We've got got trouble. We've got trouble from these outsiders coming in and uh, preaching a different kind of way. And that kind of way is a violation of what I've been teaching you. I, the elder, I'm just going to remind you, I'm the elder. I'm the one who has been instructing you. And I'm sending this letter openly to the churches for you to read all aloud and to understand that there is conflict here. And I want you to nip it in the bud. And the way that you do that is you, is you have a real hard line. If somebody is preaching this stuff that we don't believe in, if somebody is saying these harmful things, you actually have to kind of separate yourself from them. You have to say, hey, we don't want to be a part of that, and we're not actually going to host you as traveling missionaries and stuff like that because we don't want to participate in what we believe is a false gospel. That's Second John. Third John is a private letter. Third John is a kind of catty email. Third John is a private communication from the elder to Gaius, who is somebody who either he already trusts or somebody he's trying to establish a trusting relationship with. And we're going to go through it, and you're going to get the Jonah P. Overton paraphrase. So the letter starts out saying, The elder, the one who is respected, remember me, I'm your teacher. You haven't actually met me, but I'm the one who influenced all these house churches, uh, including the one that you're at. So, you know, it's me credentialed to the beloved Gaius, who I either know and already love or uh, am going to shower with praise in hopes that we can become allies. Beloved, you know, I, I bless you. May you be good in health. I know you're good in spirit. I know you've been doing good things. You have been doing amazing work. And I know that because the, the teachers that I send, the missionaries I send to your community all come back raving about you. They're like, "Oh my God guys, this is so great. He's so hospitable, he's so welcoming, so friendly. like I know that you are walking in truth, you're like on our team, you're promoting the, the, the truth of the gospel, including being extremely hospitable. And like that's a huge part of discipleship. You've got to welcome in God's people and the people who are telling the truth. And because you were so generous, helping all of our teachers be able to come to you and teach and preach, they didn't have to rely on anybody outside the church to survive. And that's the way that it should be. We should be able to rely on one another. You do faithfully when you do that. You've been really faithful, Gaius, and I'm really pleased by that. And it's, it's really good to be co-working with you in this, to be a partner with you in this. I actually wrote something for everybody I wrote a letter to go to the church, but you know, deatrophies, oh, that guy, yeah, he's not reading it. He's not sharing it. It's not getting out to the church because Diotrephes has decided that he wants to challenge my authority. He's not recognizing us. He's not welcoming our people. And in fact, actually, the thing that you've been doing that's been so good, so good, Gaius, the thing that you've been doing, not only has he not been doing it, he's been preventing other people from doing it and expelling them from the church. So, you know what? I might have to just show up. I might have to come all the way in person. And if I do, I'm going to have to acknowledge that he's spreading some nonsense about us. That he's gossiping and he's telling all kind of people terrible things. And like he's not even just talking bad about us. He's actually preventing us from doing our good work of spreading the gospel. So you know what? I just like, just don't be like that. Just like, why you got to be like that? Don't be like that. Don't imitate what is evil. Do what's good you know what's good. You know who's good? Demetrius. He's probably the one sending you this letter, P.S. Demetrius, I vouch for Demetrius. He's good people, and you know that I only speak the truth. So if you trust in me, you're going to trust in him. You guys are going to get along great. I have so much more to say, so much more to say, but I probably shouldn't write it down. So we'll just have a talk we'll have a talk. I'll come in person. It'll be so good to see you. I send greetings to you and to all our people. Tell them I say, hey, love you so much. I'll get there in person. We're going to get through this. So that's the Jonah B. Overton interpretation of Third John. And what we see here, like I said, is a personal letter. This is one of the very, very few things Uh, pieces of the scriptures that wouldn't have been intended to be read in front of the entire church. And we learn that the only reason it's coming this way is because the author wrote something for the entire church that's getting sidelined by a wayward leader who wants to defy um, the, the existing community and put himself first, according to the author of the letter. Now, it gives a really different context for do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. And we want to follow that advice. Do not imitate what is evil, imitate what is good. But we also see then that the early church, the church closest to Jesus, closest to that history, to that legacy, to the disciples, still had drama, still had these petty disagreements. And probably not just petty, right? Like, it's cute when I'm like, you know, putting a, a, a spin on this like it doesn't mean much, but there's probably really meaningful stuff in here. Like when we challenge uh, other churches, for instance, and we say, hey, you're preaching something that's hurtful, sometimes what we're talking about when we're trying to advocate for the affirmation of queer and trans youth, for instance, we know that those stakes are life and death. We're saying, hey, what you're preaching is killing people. So we know that this, this could be a very serious matter. But we also know that in the early church, there was a lot of work that had to be done to identify what was true, to debate what was true, and who the truth-tellers really were. And so I don't know why exactly this letter was so important. This letter to Gaius from the Elder was so important that it made it into the Scriptures. But now that it has made it in, it can give us a little snapshot of the difficulties of running a church, of the difficulties of being a believer, of the complexities of discerning the truth. And this is why it's a great place to begin our exploration of reading the Scripture in these brief but, but whole chunks to say, hey, Scripture isn't straightforward. Church isn't straightforward. Authority isn't straightforward. All of these things are always up for debate. And all we can do is appeal to one another with love, with faithfulness to ask one another to discern with us to trust in the leadership that we trust but also to know that leadership is fallible and to do our best to identify what is good and imitate it to identify what is evil what is causing harm and not to imitate it this part of the scriptures tell us that to do good is to be uh, imitators of good. And if we aren't doing good, if we are causing harm, it's because we haven't seen God, which is an interesting way to phrase that. And so we know that we must look for God in our communities, in our scriptures, in our debates. So I encourage you to spend some time with us during this brief sermon series, to spend some time in the scriptures, picking some of these short books, reading them in their entirety, and looking for God. Not looking for God in that kind of um, pithy, embroiderable, um, kind of as you've already encountered it, scripture verse. But in the messiness and complexity of these correspondences between human beings. In the strangeness of oral histories told over and over again until someone wrote them down years, millennia later. Let's look for God together in these brief passages, in these snapshots of moments of the history of God's people discerning together who is God and how can we be more like them. If you follow us on social, you'll see some posts coming out soon giving a highlight of what books we are headed into. You can also just Google the shortest books of the Bible if you want to start playing around with that. Um, Even some of the not not shortest ones are not that long. And so, again, I want to encourage you, if you love a passage from Galatians, if you love a passage from Colossians, um, if you love a passage from a particular psalm, Take a a few minutes or a half an hour to read that whole letter or that whole psalm and see some of the breadth of the scriptures. Help it to create new meaning in your faith and your life, and then bring it back to community. Let's discuss it on the squad page and in comments. Let's tear in together and uh, really treat Scripture with the holiness and faithfulness it requires, which is debate and question and, uh, and looking at it from a thousand different angles and seeing God where God reveals herself. Will you pray with me? God of all creation... You made a messy, beautiful, powerful world. And it makes sense that you have made a messy, beautiful, powerful scriptures. We pray that we would be faithful, that we would be curious, that we would be hopeful as we dig in. And we pray that through the next few weeks, as we encounter these short works within the library of your holy Bible, that you would give us a new approach to scripture, that you would give us a new hope for meaning, meaning-making, God that you would give us the tools and the community and support to approach your word with confidence, with hope, and that we would know and see who you are more and more. In your name we pray. Amen.